ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Game of Thrones, The Rise of David. In this series, we look at how God removed Saul from the throne and took David, a simple shepherd boy, and made him the king of Israel. We're going to uh, be looking today in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And uh, we're going to look actually at the entire chapter, but rather than taking, it takes four or five minutes to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read several verses that are kind of the key components in this section. It'll be verse 1, verse 7, verses 13 and 14. You can follow along up on the screens. I'll be using the New International Version, uh, but whichever version you use this morning, I'm going to have to point a couple things out in Hebrew because there's no way to get it into English to understand, and we'll kind of talk through those and see uh, what God is saying to us. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1, 7, 13, and 14. Hear now the word of the living God. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Verse seven, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then verses 13 and 14. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented If you look back in the history of America, that we've had quite a number of presidents, and people vastly disagree about how to rate them, except for two of our presidents. In virtually every survey I have ever seen, if you say who's the greatest president, two names always rise to the top, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. George Washington, of course, is the father of our country, the first president, the founder, and he's got that place, and he really, really stands out. And then Abraham Lincoln, who of course was president during our darkest days when our nation almost did not survive the terrible civil war that uh, tore us apart. And all other presidents jockey for position behind them. Whoever they are, how much ever people, some people like John Adams, some people like Thomas Jefferson, but they're behind those two. Well, today as we're resuming Game of Thrones, we're seeing the second king of Israel, King David, but unlike for us, He is clearly George Washington and Abraham Lincoln combined. There is no, people will argue who was greater, Washington or Lincoln, but there is no argument that David is the greatest king of Israel. He is the standard by which all other kings are judged. And oddly enough, it's not because he's the first king, because as we saw before, he's not. There had been the period of judges, ending with Samuel, in many ways the last and greatest of the judges, and then uh, Saul, who was the first king whose reign started so well and then ended so poorly. And we're going to be kind of rewinding and relooking at the same period of time that Saul is reigning uh, from the middle of Saul's reign. Actually, It's actually most of Saul's reign, but it's the middle of the story because this is where Saul starts doing poorly. Uh, and we're going to be looking at it this time to see King David uh, because he is such a great king. And we're actually going to take this 
uh, next couple of months, we're going to look at the rise of David, and then in the future, we're going to come back and we're going to look kind of at David's reign and the actual time that he serves as king. And we want to kind of be understanding who is David, how did he become king, and what were successes and failures. And let me say, one of the things that oftentimes happens with David, particularly in more evangelical, Bible-believing churches like ours, is everything is about how great David is, except for that whole Bathsheba thing. I trust you're going to see in the next couple of months, there were problems with David long before the Bathsheba thing. And there were good things with David after the Bathsheba thing. It's not just one incident. or one. David's story is a lot like yours and mine. Good today, bad tomorrow, and worse the day after, but God is always faithful to David. And so we want to look at this and we want to try and learn, and we particularly want to see how his story moves the story forward to Christ, because this is always about Jesus. And David is most important because he is the one through whom the Messiah will come. So with that, let's dive in <clears throat> to our new series, The Game of Thrones. Now we begin by noting here that in chapter 16, God is sovereignly choosing a new king. Notice in verse 1, it opens up, and we're not given a, an idea of how long it has been. In chapter 15, Samuel had spoken this resounding word of judgment on King Saul and said, God, you rejected God, so God has rejected you. He has torn the kingdom away from you, and he's going to give it to someone who's better than you, a person who's after God's own heart. And then in verse 1 of chapter 16, we suddenly read that sometime later, apparently, the Lord says to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Even the prophet Samuel is struggling here. Samuel, who up to this point in the book has just time after time after time spoken the word of God, heard God accurately, known what God wanted to do. Samuel here has to be rebuked by the Lord because the Lord says, you're mourning over Saul. You wish things were going to work out with Saul, but I'm telling you, I've rejected Saul. That chapter is done, Samuel. Pick up and move on. I want you to get your horn. I want you to fill it with oil, and I want you to go down to Bethlehem, and you're going to find Jesse because I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And so notice here, he, he's got this idea that that last sentence there, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. God is saying, I've got a new king for my people. And this word chosen is a very interesting word. It's not the normal Hebrew word for chosen. It's a Hebrew word, ra'ah, which normally means to see. That's what it usually means, to see something. But it can mean to choose or provide. So I've chosen a king or I'm providing a king. The place where you've heard this Hebrew word before is as, as we mispronounce in English, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is my provider, or Yahweh Yireh, the Lord shall be provided. On the mountain of the Lord, Abraham, it will be provided. It's the same word that's being used here, and it's the word see, and it's used a bunch of times in this passage. The reason I'm bringing it up is not just so that you can learn a, a neat little Hebrew word. This word is used, the verb is used seven times in this passage, it's used here in verse 1 where he says, I have seen one of the sons of Jesse, or I'm, I'm providing one of the sons of Jesse to be my king, or I'm choosing one of the sons of Jesse as king. It's used in verse 6 when God is looking and, and Samuel thinks that it's going to be the oldest brother. It's used three times in verse 7 where God does not see things the way 
human beings see them. It's used in verses 17 and 18, interestingly, when Saul needs someone to go out and see who can play music for him. So we're going to come back to that. The noun form is also used twice in the passage. It's used in verse 7 again. So there's actually four occurrences. Three of them are a verb, one of them a noun. In verse 7, it's used in verse 12 as well. So nine times in this passage, the word that's normally translated see, but here throughout it's got this secondary idea of, of I'm seeing them in the sense that I'm choosing them. I'm, I'm providing them to be the king uh, over my people and what's happening. And also, the no, more typical word, which is bahar, uh, is used three times in the passage for, but it's basically saying, I'm not choosing. Uh, so I'm not using the, the, the normal word bahar. I'm not baharing that person, which is David's brothers. The way you think I would, the, the choice you think I would make, I'm not making. And God uses this other term. So it is a major emphasis in this passage because what we've seen is that the problem Israel has run into is they wanted to choose their own king. The people had clamored for a king and they had gotten a Saul. But now the people aren't even asking for a king. The people are still happy with Saul. But God says, I'm not happy with Saul and I have seen and chosen, and I'm providing a new king, even though you didn't ask for it, because what is central is that God chooses the king. Not that the people would choose the king, but that God would choose the king over his people. Now, that leads to the second thing, because not only does God do the choosing here, but God's method of choosing is very different than our own. And this is where we get down to verses 6 and 7, because Samuel goes on his way, and interestingly enough, it's kind of funny, he's afraid of Saul, but when he shows up in Bethlehem, all the elders are afraid of Samuel, uh, and God's told him, you know, go down there, and you're going to have a sacrifice, and, and call Jesse, and tell Jesse to bring his sons, because one of them is going to be chosen by Yahweh. So, Samuel gets there. And Jesse's brought his seven oldest sons. All we know is that he's got seven sons. And in verses 6 and 7, we read this. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at at the heart. Now the three words that I've highlighted there in yellow, saw, looks, looks, and actually it's four times, looks again, those are all uses of that same word from verse one. Okay? So in other words, where Samuel saw him, he's thinking, God told me he's seen one of the sons of Jesse, and I'm looking, and I see Eliab, and I say, oh, I'm seeing the same thing God saw. This is obviously the one that God has chosen. But then, interestingly enough, three times in verse 7, God has to even speak to his prophet and say, no, 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 Samuel. I don't see the way you see. I don't choose the way you choose. Now, this is an interesting thing. And then notice it as well, it's even got the word appearance, which is a noun form of the same word. And he says, you're looking at the outward appearance, but I'm telling you, don't consider his appearance. Don't see externally, Samuel, that's what got you in trouble. This is what got you all in trouble with Saul. 
when you looked around, Saul was the tallest. And I even pointed that out to you. He was a head taller than anybody. He was impressive. There was no one like him. And Samuel, you apparently didn't learn because how well did that end for you? And I point this out because it's really important to see here. Notice we're told God rejects. He says, I've rejected this oldest son of Jesse. And it's the same word used of Saul in verse 1 and multiple times in verse 15. So God's being very, very clear. My response to him is the same as my response was uh, Samuel towards Saul. And Samuel, you delivered that word to Saul, and here you are judging the same way the people judge. And I'm not saying this to get on Samuel, because I wish I was as often correct as Samuel was. The reason this is being brought out for you and I is this is a major trouble for all of us. Since the fall, you and I judge by shallow outward appearance. But God sees down to the heart, and he makes his choice on that which is not seen among human beings. And friend, if Samuel, the prophet of God, can fall into that, don't deceive yourself and think you won't. Man, that is a temptation for us that grips our heart. We choose by shallow outward things. And even more than that, we choose by the way we have been patterned to think by the world around us. The world has told us what is important. The world has told us what will make a difference, and then you and I see through that lens. We see through that frame. But here is the radical call of the kingdom. The very things that are highly esteemed in the eyes of our culture, in the eyes of this fallen world, are rejected by God because God sees through to the heart of the matter. And what that means is, as a disciple of Christ, you and I must reject the choice of our culture and follow after God's choice. They, they are always going to be in conflict with one another. It is, it is a consistent thing. And this is why discipleship is a radical call for you and me. It's not just in a few areas. It's not even just in the ultimate choice. Even if our choice ended up being the same, we're going to arrive at it for a very different reason. Our culture is always looking on the outside, and it is patterning and shaping you and I 24-7 to look at all the wrong things. And this is not just outside the church. Look at what is valued very often in the modern American church and then compare it to the Scripture. And you will see they are very often not the same. We look on outward appearance. How big? How impressive? How much are you doing this? And God says, I have a whole different standard. I'm not looking at any of that. And what is, Jesus brings us up to the Pharisees, you remember, and they laughed and mocked at him. And Jesus said, what is, what is valuable in your sight is detestable in the eyes of God. And the Pharisees, steeped in the law, mocked him for saying that. Okay, that is what's coming through to us here. Now, because God's method is different, God has a very surprising choice, we are told. And we see this choice come down in verses 10 and 11. So notice in verse 10, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. We were told about the first three. Now we're told there were seven of them passed before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not 
chosen these. Same word. The, Lord, the Lord's not seeing this. This is not what God's seeing, okay? Um, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? I, I'm confused, Jesse. God told me to come here, and it was one of your sons. I told you bring your sons, and you've brought them, and seven of them. The, the, the number of fullness. They've passed in front of me one by one, and God keeps saying, no, no. I mean, and Jesse, look, I, I looked, and man, these are some impressive young men you got here. I thought they were it, but God has said no to all of them. I'm confused. And Jesse says, well, I mean, there is another one. There's another one. It's the youngest. Now, the interesting thing is the word youngest here, the Hebrew word, the primary meaning is the smallest, the little one. It's oftentimes used in the Old Testament for that which is insignificant. Now, so it's a, it's a word play, okay, because it does mean youngest. But I want you to notice, you can tell how much they thought of David by the fact when he was told, get all of your sons, where was David left? Well, I mean, you can't mean David. I mean, that guy, and notice here, we don't even get his name at this point. He doesn't say, well, I got another one, David. Well, I got, I got this little insignificant thing out there. And Samuel says, yeah, bring him here because we're not even going to sit down and eat until he gets here. I mean, notice, David's own family had not even thought he was significant enough to bring. God is screaming out to us through this passage, I don't choose the way you do. Even his own family would not have chosen him. But that's the one that I am waiting on. And let me, let me go ahead and say too, how many of you think that his brothers all said, oh, glory be, this is awesome. It's the run of the litter. He's the one that God chose, and he skipped by me. I mean, they did not go home and write a worship song about this, okay? I mean, they're like, what, what on earth are you talking about? They're probably thinking, I think Samuel's lost it a little bit. But they bring David in, and the one not even considered by his family is the one who's going to be chosen by God to be the next king. And so what we read then is God has David anointed, but he's not only anointed, he's anointed with spirit. Because when he comes in, we're told Samuel looked at him, and God said, that's the one. That's the one I see right there. And so Samuel arises and he anoints him. But more important than David even being anointed is the fact that he's going to be anointed by the Spirit. Notice in verse 13, Samuel anoints David as king. We're told Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. The brothers had to stand there and watch this, okay? It's kind of the way God does things, and we're going to see this over and over again. So he's anointed in the presence of his brothers. Um, and now anointing is something that was done in ancient cultures. You would take oil and you would quite often, honestly, pour it, not like we usually do with just a little bit. They, they would pour it all over you so that your hair looked like some greaser in the 50s or something. And it was done to install kings. Um, and Israel, it had been done to anoint the tabernacle and the utensils in the tabernacle because what it meant was this thing is being set apart. It's being set apart to be holy. But there's also another interesting thing. Israel is most affected by the culture of Egypt. This is where they had lived for 400 years. Egypt was the dominant power. Egypt did not anoint Pharaoh because Pharaoh was a god. Pharaoh anointed those who were kings under him because they were being told, 
As you are being set in here, you remember, I'm the real king. Yahweh's doing exactly the same thing. David, you're being set in, and I want you to understand, the reason you're being set in is because Saul got himself in trouble. Because Saul decided that rather than obeying me, he was going to play the game of thrones. Saul wanted to establish his own throne, and for that reason, David, you're now going to be king. And I don't want you to ever forget, it is not your throne. It is my throne. And I put on it who I want to be on it. That's what's going on here is David is being anointed. God is showing, I have seen David. I have chosen David. I am providing David. And David, remember, always remember, you are my vassal servant. No matter how big your kingdom may be, no matter how successful I may make you, remember, you serve me. Don't be Saul. Do not play the game of thrones. You always lose when you try to get on the throne. Now, at that point then, this is an external thing, but immediately what happens is the external symbol is followed by the internal reality. And so we read in verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel anoints with oil. God anoints with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and notice, it literally says the Spirit rushed upon David. The Spirit, that's why the NIV's got it, came on him in power. There's not a word for power, but the picture is the Spirit rushes on top of David, and David becomes a mighty man. But here's the interesting thing. This is the first time we've ever read David's name. It's not mentioned in the passage before now because it is telling us David, David is the man of the Spirit. He's not the young, insignificant, small child of Jesse. He's the man of the Spirit. Because the first time you learn his name is when the Spirit rushes upon him in power. And this is, will explain why David has a meteoric rise, why he's going to go from an insignificant shepherd that his family didn't even think about to a mighty warrior. In the very next chapter, we're going to find all the great people hiding, and David walks up and says, I can take care of Goliath for you. It's not because David's a great warrior. That's not the point. It's because the Spirit is on David, because David is the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah. He's a pointer forward to Christ. All of it is about him, and that's what they want us to understand. This is all because of the Spirit anointing David. It's not just David. It's David, the anointed one who is able to do this. And so at this point, what we discover is there's a tale of three kings that are going on here. There is, and the three kings are <clears throat> Saul, David, and Jesus. Notice here in verses 13 and 14, we read that from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Then we're told, this weird little statement, Samuel left and went down to Ramah, and then the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. So notice we've got David, the Spirit comes on, the Spirit departs from Saul, and in the middle we're told Samuel is leaving. The reason is because the story is now moving from a story of Samuel and Saul to a story of David and Saul. Okay, everything is going to shift. Samuel was mentioned 
117 times up to this point in the book of Samuel. This is the 117th mention of Samuel. He will be mentioned 13 times in the rest of the book. And almost all of those are when Saul goes to the witch at Endor and tries to call Samuel up from the dead. And he says, what are you doing? I already told you way back when I was the center focal point what was going to happen to you, and tomorrow you'll be down here with me. Okay? Samuel almost drops off the pages of the book. David, however, is never mentioned until chapter 16. His first mention of his name is in chapter 16, verse 13. The Spirit rushes on him. He's going to be mentioned 268 times in the rest of the book. And Saul is about evenly split in the two halves of the book. So it's going from Saul and Samuel to Saul and David. And there is a huge contrast. Notice here, it's not by mistake. The first time we learn about David, the Spirit's coming on him. And at the same time, what's the Spirit doing to Saul? He's departing Saul. He's left Saul, we are told. It's also very, very important. You remember, Saul became king, not because Yahweh said we need a king, but because the people clamored for a king. And you remember Samuel got all upset, and God said, hey, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They've chosen Saul over me. But here, David becomes king because he's chosen by God. The people aren't even realizing that they need a king. If you remember, where was, how do we first meet Saul in the book of Samuel? What's he wandering around doing? looking for donkeys. What do we, when we first hear of David, what's David doing? Caring for the flock and the sheep. And forever he becomes the standard that what God needs is not a donkey chaser, but a shepherd. A shepherd for the flock. Okay, It's important to grasp what God is showing us here. David is chosen. Saul is rejected. David's going to receive a dynasty that will usher in Messiah. Saul's line is cut off. Big contrast. And this is because, again, not of David on his own. It's because David is a type of the Messiah. The Hebrew word Messiah, or the Greek word Christ, simply means anointed one. The, the, when it says uh, to anoint in, in Hebrew, the, 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 verb for, I mean, the, the noun form for anointed one is Mashiach. That's where we get Messiah from, and that's all it means. And so the first time David's mentioned is the Spirit comes on him. He's the anointed one. And David is not, and that's what the word Messiah comes to mean. They start saying, okay, well, the Davidic king is going to be like David. What's important about David is the Spirit's come on him. What's important about Messiah is that the Spirit is upon him. Secondly, we've learned about David that he is not outwardly impressive. Jesse didn't even think to bring him to the feast, okay? Remember what we're told about uh, the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, 2, we read this. This is the servant song, one of the clearest messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Here's what we read about the Messiah. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Doesn't sound like Saul, does it? See, God says, oh, look at Saul. Everybody notices Saul. We're told about Messiah, and nobody would pay attention to the guy. Okay, Jesus doesn't look like a movie star. He doesn't walk around. People walked by the God of the universe in human flesh and didn't even notice him. Because what was important was not outward appearance. That's not what God is looking at. Finally, notice David is anointed with the Holy Spirit, and the Messiah is the one that's anointed with the Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah says the same thing. It says, a shoot 
will come up from the stump of Jesse. Okay, notice the analogy, the, the reference back here to Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's a sevenfold spirit of God that rests upon this Messiah. It's the fullness of the Holy Spirit that comes on. This is the passage where we're told, and then ultimately the wolf's gonna lie down with the lamb. And all of these kinds of things is there in Isaiah 11. Because what we're being told is, look, I told you from the very first time you saw David, when Samuel first lays eyes on him and anoints him and the spirit rushes on him, that's what defines David. That's what defines David's line. That's what defines the Messiah. He is the one who is anointed, and he's anointed with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. What everybody else has had just in measure, the Messiah is going to have in fullness. And so what we're learning here is Saul, the man the people would choose, is bereft of the Holy Spirit and fails. But the one God chooses, who is insignificant in the eyes of the people, is given the Spirit, and he is the one who will deliver and shepherd the people. And all of it is meant to point you and I forward to Jesus, the Messiah, the one anointed with the Spirit, who may be insignificant in the eyes of the world, but is much in the eyes of God, and who delivers the people of God, and who shepherds the people of God. That's what God wants us to see in this text. Now, what happens then briefly, and we're just going to cover this briefly, and then we're going to go to the application is it doesn't stop there because God brings David into the court of Saul because we have a problem. There's two kings. So what's going to happen? Because the whole reason we've got the Game of Thrones going on is when God said, Saul, you're off the throne, did Saul say, yes, Lord, who would you like to sit on it? No. Saul is still fighting. Look in the mirror tomorrow and you'll see another person who's got very much that same tendency. We want to fight against what God is doing. And Saul says, no, I'm going to keep my throne. And so how is God going to get David on the throne? Well, he does it in a way that is very uncomfortable for both David and Saul. He says, okay, I'll just bring the two kings together. And they'll get in there with one another. And so notice in verses 14 to 16, we read Saul is tormented by an evil spirit. We're told the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So an evil spirit has replaced the Holy Spirit. Now, that may be a shocking verse to us. One thing to understand is the word evil there is a word that can mean moral evil, but it can also mean an illness. It can mean something that is injurious. It's, it's something that is bad. It's the opposite of that which is good and pleasant and right. It can be the opposite. So it does not mean necessarily, and here it doesn't mean, that it is a moral evil. What it is saying is, is look, Saul rejected Yahweh's rule, and there is an outcome of that, and the outcome is the Holy Spirit departs from Saul because he's trying to establish his own kingship, and those kind of actions always lead to disaster. Saul thinks he's going to get on the throne, and God says, no, you're not. Saul thinks he's going to stay the man anointed by the Spirit, and God says, no, you're not. Saul thinks everything is going to go well, and Yahweh says, you've now opened yourself up, and what you're in fact going to become is a stark, raving lunatic. And friend, thanks be to God, you and I are not under the judgment of God. God will never take the Holy Spirit from you and I. But I want to tell you, if you play the Game of Thrones, 
you are opening yourself up for a world of misery. And so am I. If we play that game, it never works to our good. That's exactly what we see in Saul. And so, um, but it is important to understand who's in control of this spirit that's come upon Saul. Yahweh is because Yahweh is sovereign throughout this passage and he's going to accomplish his, his work. So the servants say, notice there, hey, why don't we get a musician to relieve this problem? Now, a couple of things to be noted. They did this very often in the ancient world. And in fact, today, we still use music because we know it has good properties. Nothing wrong with that, except for there's a problem. Why is Saul in this state? Because he's playing the Game of Thrones and he's rebelling against Yahweh. And there's no amount of worship music going to fix that for you. Not going to happen. What's the way for Saul to come out from under this torment? Repent. Get off the throne. Stop playing this game. But see, and I know you've never done this, nor have I, but I've read about it in the book that people do this sometimes. Rather than that, I will try other solutions. And there will always be those who will peddle them for you and for me. They will always give us another way out. I'll stop there and let you just think about that one. So here's the difficult thing for David. This means David's going to end up in the court of Saul. And this is what's funny. In verses 17 and 18, we read, Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well. Same word back in verse 1. God said, I have seen one of the sons of Jesse. Saul says, go out and see somebody for me. Go out and choose somebody for me. Same word as went back there. Except instead of Yahweh searching, it is now Saul and his attendant searching. And one of the servants stands up, and you got to picture here what's going on. Out of all of Israel, this guy says, oh, you want somebody who plays? I've heard of somebody who plays. Young son of Jesse. Name's David. Now, you have to stop at that point in the text and say, are you kidding me? I mean, either this is like a really huge coincidence or God is sovereign. And God is saying, I'm going to bring the two together and I'm going to work this out. And the, the, the man kind of really embellishes that, hey, man, this guy's a, he's a mighty warrior. He's all of this kind of stuff, Saul, which... Other sons of Jesse would say, really, we didn't even bring him to the feast. But notice the important thing is the last phrase, and Yahweh's with him. And what you need, Saul, is you need somebody who's got Yahweh with him. Because, see, God is behind this, bringing Saul and David together. Of all the people he could have heard about, the servants heard about David. And he's going to bring him in here, and he's going to do this. Now, what that means that we, if we jump forward just to the last couple of verses in this chapter, verses 22 and 23, we read the beginning of their relationship. And the beginning is that David's come in, Saul's met him, he's pleased with him. And so in verse 22, he sends word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. I like this young guy. And whenever the Spirit of God from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. So David is ministering to Saul, and Saul recognizes that Yahweh is so with David, it brings relief to Saul because the Lord is with him. But here's the interesting thing. 
what Saul should do at this point is recognize who David is. But there is one thing not going to happen when you're playing the Game of Thrones. And the one thing is, I am not getting off this throne no matter what. And so therefore, if David is the one being called to sit on the throne, what do you think Saul's reaction is going to be? Guys like that start throwing spears. Here's the interesting thing. If Saul knew Yahweh was behind bringing David into the court, you think he would have let him get there? Here's a harder question for you and me. If you're David and you find out that Yahweh's putting you in there and what Saul's going to be like, do you think you'd want to go? I don't think I would. Because David, see, at this point, and have you ever faced this? David thinks, wow, I was keeping sheep. Now all of a sudden this guy pours oil all over my head and says I'm the king, and then all of a sudden Saul's heard about me, and I'm in here, and I'm playing the harp, and I'm an armor bearer to the king, and man, life is good. He has no idea what's coming down the pike. No idea at all. I'll be honest with you, I love what I do for a job. I'm so glad God saw me and for some strange reason said, I want you to be a pastor. If I had known, I'm telling you the truth, this, this is 22 and a half years into it. If I had known in a flash, I would still be programming computers probably. Okay? But you know what? That's the way things work. See, in God's wisdom, he doesn't usually show us that. But here's the hard part. When God brings you in and it's all this grace and all this glory and it's all wonderful, and then suddenly things turn, we start wondering, did God really do this? But see, God did do this. God brought David and Saul together for his own purposes because he's going to get Saul off the throne and David on the throne underneath Yahweh so that Messiah can come, the one to whom throne rightly belongs. But that may take some tough times for David. We'll come back to those in the series. So how do we apply this word? Very simple. One thing and we'll come to the Lord's table. I'm going to do less today on application than normal because it's pretty obvious. Question is, do I live under the sovereignty of God? Do I live under God's sovereignty? God is sovereign throughout this passage. He chooses David. Nobody else had David on the radar. He gives the Holy Spirit to David. The Spirit rushes upon David. Nobody else was picturing doing that. Nobody else could have done that. He leads David into Saul's court. Of all the things that could have happened, the two kings are now together because Yahweh is working on his purposes, and he's doing it both because of Saul, but he's also doing it for David. David's going to be formed, fashioned, shaped by what God is bringing him through. God is sovereign through the whole passage. Do I see that God's sovereignty, however, here's what's difficult. God exercises his sovereignty by making choices in a very different way than I would make choices. That's why God's sovereignty is a problem. Because God says, I'm going to do something for you, Brett. And I say, this is awesome, Lord. And then he shows me what he's doing. And I'm like, come again? That... I, I, that's not where I thought we were going. Or in my worst moments, I get to get thee behind me. 
okay? Because God does it very, very differently than we would do it. He does it very differently than we would do things. His ways, his thoughts, his choices are very different than fallen humanities. And if we follow God's ways, God's thoughts, God's choices, it spells conflict with the world around us. It just does. David is being called by God, accepts God's call. Saul is not going to accept that. And David is in for a world of trouble and pain and hardship. But there's only two choices. I submit to God's sovereignty or I don't. And if I don't, I now find God is my enemy. And if I do, I find everyone who is not <laughs> submitting to God's choice as my enemy. That's the only choice. So how do I find myself in that struggle? Do I think and choose as the world does or as God does? What determines what I value? God and his word or the way our culture thinks? Friends, it's becoming more and more apparent the way our culture thinks is drifting further and further and further away from what God has revealed in the Scripture. And the more we stand up on those things, the more cost there's going to be. So another, I'm just keep turning this little diamond around here for you to keep thinking and asking these questions because it's easy to say, yes, I, I, man, I embrace the sovereignty of God. Well, this is what it means to. Am I willing to follow God's choices even if it costs? Am I willing to pay that price? Remember, Saul's rejected, not because Yahweh just woke up one day and said, I'm in a bad mood. This is the worst cosmic hair day in the history of cosmic bad hair days. And Saul, you're the guy I'm after. That's not what happened. Saul's rejected because Saul rejected Yahweh's rule. Saul decided he was not going to submit to God's sovereignty, and there were disastrous consequences for himself and all kinds of people around him. And that's what inevitably happens. So am I being like David or like Saul? In this case, this week, David's a good example for us. He's a picture of Christ, and Saul's a picture of the world apart from Christ. Am I submitting to God's choice, or am I playing the game of thrones? Let me rephrase that question as we come to the table. Not or. When am I submitting to God's choice? And when am I playing the game of thrones? Where am I submitting to God's choice? And where am I playing the game of thrones? Because every one of us are doing it at some area or another in our life. So we're going to come down to the Lord's table. And I want to invite us to come. Because this is the table of the true high king. The good news is, this is not my table. It's not Bay Ridge's table. It's not the table of Saul or the king. This is the table of the king, Jesus. But what I want to encourage us to do this morning as we come to this table is to ask ourselves, where have I been playing the Game of Thrones? See, the way out for Saul was simple. We don't need a huge search committee. We don't need to pay to bring more people in the retinue. 
Saul didn't need anybody. Saul just needed to repent. And then there was peace. And you and I have the same need. So as we come to the table this morning, ask the Lord. Ask him to show you. Is there an area, Lord, where I'm playing this game? Where I'm thinking, I, I want to be on the throne. And if there is, save yourself a world of hurt. Save those around you a whirlwind of troubles. And simply say, Lord, I don't want to do that. The good news is you and I are here not because you are worthy. Because, friends, we have all played the game of thrones. All of us. So many times. But God welcomes us. And as you eat and you drink and you receive forgiveness, I want us then to also ask God and say, God, tomorrow when I go down that well-worn path and I start thinking and judging and acting the way the world does, give me your eyes to see. Let, let me judge the way you judge. Lord, when I start wanting to, that throne's looking so good. God, give me eyes to see where that thing leads. I don't want to be that way. And God, by the Holy Spirit, will empower you and I to do that. I remind everyone, you do not have to be a member of our church. Participate. You just have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means you believe he is the Messiah. He is the one who has lived for us, died for us, been raised for us and for our salvation. And our only hope of salvation is not what we bring, but what he has brought for us. And if you believe that with all your heart, we invite you, come to the table of your king. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, this morning we come to this table, and Lord, we come recognizing we are seated here as those who have so often rebelled, who have so often turned away, and yet you and your grace welcome us. And so, Lord, as we come this morning, and in a moment we eat and we drink, we do it as a confession of our own sin, and your righteousness, and of our faith, Lord God, that you justify even us because we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Meet us, Holy Spirit, and power through this, your sacrament. In Jesus' name, amen. As you get the elements, hold on to them. We will take them together in three or four minutes. Jesus, as we come to this table this morning, we begin by confessing our own sin. Lord, we begin by confessing our lust. Lord, we have longed and desired for things which you've told us are not good for us. Like our parents in the garden, no matter how much you've given us, we've longed for the thing which we did not have. Father, we have even run after shiny, 
vacuous things and made them to be gods. And Lord, we have longed for things that you have said are good, but that you have given to someone other than us that has made us jealous and filled with greed, sometimes embittered and angry. Father, we have not seen the world the way you see it. And Jesus, as we hold this bread that represents your body, which was broken and shattered, we realize fresh and new that we played the game of thrones, and not only did we lose, but you were crushed because of our rebellion. And Lord, this morning, we don't call for someone to play a song. We don't look for a medication. We don't buy a self-help book. We come and we bow before you and we say, Lord, we are sinners. We have broken your law. We have violated your ways. And our thoughts, our desires, our attitudes, and our deeds. Father, we have no excuse. We admit our rebellion. But Father, we come with hope because Christ was as sovereign in the moment that he died as he was when he called young David to be a shepherd. He was as sovereign when he was raised for us in our justification as he was when he brought David into the court of the king. Lord, we take hope this morning that though we have been rebels against you and your rule, because of Christ, we are forgiven. And so we say, thanks be to God for the broken body of Jesus Christ. Take and eat. Father, as we hold this cup of the covenant, we are reminded that in the gracious covenant you have given to us, We are but your servants. But Lord, we are in the new covenant where all that was required has been met by Jesus Christ. Where, Father, the law is no longer external, but you have written it upon our hearts. Where the Holy Spirit is not only given to a few, but is now graciously poured out upon and dwells in every one of your children within the new covenant. Father, what a great treasure you have given to us in your covenant provision through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask not only that the blood of Christ would cleanse us from the penalty of sin, but that also that blood would cleanse us from its power. Because, Lord, we don't want to be like King Saul. Lord, we don't want to go forth from this place and continue to play this foolish game. Lord, we would ask that what would beat from our heart tomorrow would be the law of God. We ask that tomorrow we would see the way you see, that we would choose the way you choose. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would shape our hearts so that we would long and desire for the things that you long and desire for, and that the things that would break your heart would break our Holy Spirit, that's beyond us, but it's not beyond you, Spirit of the living God. So we pray as we drink this cup, O Lord, 
that you would cleanse us not only from the guilt of our sin, but Father, break its power and its hold in us that we might be your obedient servants through Jesus Christ. Take and drink. Spirit of the living God who rushed upon David when he was anointed and turned a young shepherd into a great warrior, turned a shepherd of simple sheep into a shepherd over the people of God. Holy Spirit, you have not grown weak. I pray that you would rush upon all of us now. We have fed upon the word that you have inspired. We have worshiped before the throne of the Father. We have remembered the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we have come to the table. And so, Spirit of the living God, I pray you would rise up within every one of us. I pray that you would mold and shape and form and fashion us, that we would go out and that we would be mighty tools in the hands of the living God. Transform us to be like Jesus, and then, Lord, may we go out to do the work of the kingdom, not because of who we are, but because the Spirit has come upon us fresh and new. I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name for your glory, for our good and the good of the people around us. Amen. Let's stand together. We will conclude with the word of benediction. I encourage you, receive the blessing of your King. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people say, amen. Go in the peace of our Lord. Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.